0: I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Hi everyone, I'm Rivi Frankel, and welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Tvarim is titled, Dor Hem Messages for a Lifetime. Each episode explores Moshe's educational message for the Jewish people as they prepare to enter the land of Israel. Each week's guest will be someone who herself has learned at Matan and is now passing these educational messages on to the next generation. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor of a memory or loved one, please contact the Matan office by telephone or email us at podcast at These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. This week's Parsha, Parshat Shoftim, opens with the commandment to appoint judges and officers to govern the people in Eretz Yisrael. Tzedek Tzedek Tirdof, pursue justice, so that you may live and inherit the land that God has given you. What follows is descriptions of laws necessary for judges and officers to uphold a court system. The need of two witnesses in the cases of capital punishment and the process for when a case is too difficult for the local courts, for example. If the people decide to appoint a king after they enter the land, they may do so, but the king has specific mitzvot that pertain to him. He should be chosen by God from the Jewish people, not have too many horses, wives, or wealth, and keep a copy of the Torah with him and follow it at all times. The Parsha then details the role of the Levites and the priests and the responsibilities the people have towards them as they have no portion in the land. Moshe warns the people about embracing sorcery and magic. Hashem will provide real prophets, but be warned that false prophets will be liable for death. We then turn to systems of justice, including the Ir Meklat, the city of refuge, stressing that it applies for accidental killings and not purposeful murder, and the famous verse of Ayin Tachat Ayin, an eye for an eye. Before going out to war, there are four categories of people who are turned away from the front. Our parsha details laws of war, including when to offer peace, and when taking spoils is permitted, the parsha ends with Egla Rufa, the seemingly strange process that takes place when a stranger is found murdered out in the field between two cities. Today, my guest is Rabbinet Rachel Weinstein. Rachel is a graduate of Matan's Helchatah program and is a Shaul L'meshiv and Mashpia at MMY, a lecturer at the Lapidot program for educators, and Maale. She is a Yoetzet Talacha working specifically on the fertility hotline. She's also a contributor to the Matan Shaila Responsa Initiative. Rachel is making Shabbat Sheva Brachot this week for her son and just celebrated her daughter's bat mitzvah. Mazal to Rachel, and thank you so much for being here with us. Hey, thank you. So happy to be here. So, in this week's Parsha, we deal with a lot of systems that are being put into place for creating a just society, right? Sedek Sedek Tirdof. You should pursue justice. And one of the systems that we're told about that Moshe actually puts in place before the Jews enter Israel is the Yirmikklat, is this City of Refuge. And part of the specific nature of the City of Refuge is that this is not for somebody who murders someone and then wants to run away to be saved. This is specifically a system for someone who accidentally kills somebody. And I'm wondering if you can shed some light on why someone who accidentally hurt someone else would need to run, why this system is in place, and how this helps B'nai Israel and society in the land of Israel.
1: Thank you for asking. And I want to say a few words before that, just about how I think it's interesting how in Judaism, it's very hard to be punished by capital punishment. Like in order to be able to be put by put to death, a person has to have killed intentionally. And also there has to have been a warning at witnesses. And it's interesting how even the witness have, have to say to him, you know, what you're doing is a sur, And you know that if you do it, you'll be put to death. And he has to answer I know the alminat can I say and I'm doing it anyways. And I think that in halakha, we see how the halakha really limits very, very much capital punishment, the death penalty. And I think that also before we explore the reasons for Ir Mikrat, I think it's important to understand that in halakha, there are few definitions of intention. Okay, so in Halakha there's something called Mizid, which again is doing something with intent. When somebody does something premeditated, that's Mizid, right? It's a Mashir Tada, he really planned it. There's shogeg, which is something that's done inadvertently by mistake. And there's something that's called onis, which is even like kind of a lower level of intention. And and in halacha we relate to all these three in many contexts, both in Rotzeach, right, in in manslaughter or in murder. But I feel like Shabbat is one of the places where it's very easy to kind of like explain the terms. I want to go to Shabbat for a second. Okay, so if somebody does something on Shabbat that's not allowed, so they could either do it b'mezid and then they would be punishable by death, just like we said in Rotzeach. And there could be somebody who does something b'shogeg. On Shabbat, Shabbat, Shogeg is defined either by the fact that they didn't know the thing was not allowed or they didn't know it's Shabbat today. And then mit'asek or ones on Shabbat is somebody that something happened with no intention at all. Like if somebody leans on the wall and the light goes on, that's not even shogeg, that's called ones. So going back to rotzeach, it's interesting how somebody who is rotzeach b'shogeg, meaning somebody, is, it's very clearly defined that he's shogeg, then he goes to the Ir But in certain cases, he won't go to the Ir And it could be either because we consider his act an act that's too close to mizid meaning he wasn't being responsible and he wasn't being careful. And then he doesn't have the skhut he doesn't have the merit of going to an Or it could be a case where it's so not his fault at all that we say he doesn't even have to go to an And I think part of what this really tells us is how ir is both, um, it's both a schut and it's a punishment. And it's kind of something that's, it's a combination of the two. So it's a schut because in the ancient world or also in the modern world in certain societies, somebody who killed is in danger. There's the goel adam, there's the family that might come and and kill him. as a reaction to the death that he caused. But also, there's this statement that even when something does something by mistake, so there are different levels of by mistake, but they are held responsible, they're held accountable for what their action caused. Meaning, even if somebody didn't mean to do something, we really expect people to be very careful about people's lives.
0: What you're saying reminds me of a story that I often tell when I'm guiding in Tel Aviv, standing in the port of Yafo, the ancient port that Shlomo Melech takes the of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon from into Yerushalayim in order to build the Beit Mikdash, the same port that Yonah runs to when he's trying to run away from Nevuah and HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And when you're standing in that port and you're looking out at the high, tall towers of Tel Aviv, at what used to be the sand dunes, if you turn to the left, to today what is now the Satai Hotel, that used to be the police station in Yafo. And right in that very corner, there's one room that has reinforced concrete. And the reason for that is that when they brought Eichmann to Israel, they held him in that police station for one night. And before they transported him to Jerusalem, to the Gerard Bahar Center, where he was going to stand trial for that one night that he stayed in Tel Aviv, they wanted to make sure that no one was going to know that Eichmann came in. First of all, at all, they kept it top secret, but also if somebody did find out that they wouldn't be able to kill Eichmann prematurely. And part of that is we wanted the world to be able to hear the atrocities that Eichmann and his fellow Nazis had committed against the Jewish people. But I think another part of it was this idea that we have in this week's parsha of tzedek tzedek tirdof and to run after justice. And there's something about the Irmiklat that reminds me also of this room. The Irmiklat wasn't just a place that a person who committed accidental murder could run. And I have to say, I'm not making the comparison between Eichmann and accidental murder. Eichmann was evil and committed evil acts against humanity. But in the story of the accidental murderer, the Torah does not command the family of the murdered not to chase after the accidental murderer. It's the accidental murderer who needs to run to the miklat, and the murderer's family of the Torah almost understands that the murderer's family is angry and is going to try and run and take their own street rough justice, if you will, out against this person who killed their family member. And so we put Eichmann in a reinforced concrete room because we weren't going to tell people not to have emotions and not to want to try and kill Eichmann, but we were going to create a place where justice could take place. And I think it's also about the fact that sometimes in our tradition, there are rules and laws, injustice, that are hard for us to sit with. It's hard for us to say, I'm not going to run up and attack Eichmann, especially if we were the family member or even maybe somebody who had survived themselves. And what the Torah does in the, city of Ir- in the story of your Ir- but also in general with the mitzvot in this week's parsha, is that it gives us a... Framework and a system to understand what justice is.
1: So there's actually a pasuk that I really am very passionate about that uh, that really connects to what you're saying. In the parsha it says in Perikudai and chapter 17, verse 11, Al Torah Asher Mishpat Asher According to the Torah that you are taught and the law <coughs> that you are told, Don't veer, don't stray from the thing you are told, right or left. And it's a very famous pasuk, and the Rashi on this pasuk is also very famous. Rashi says, So even if he tells you right is left and left is right, you have to trust Chazal to give you a reality check. And this is a very famous and I think controversial Rashi, because Rashi is saying, even if the Chachamim tell you something that seems clearly wrong, you're supposed to trust them and... And the Ramban actually says it in a little bit more of a gentler way. Like in Rashi, it sounds like even if they say something that's like clearly wrong, like they tell you right is left, you know, right is not left. And the Ramban, the wording is a little bit different, and it's based in the Midrash. The Ramban says, I'll just read it. He's quoting Rashi, and he says, even if in your heart you think it's as clear as them telling you right is left and left is right, then you should listen to them. There's a very similar wording that appeared a couple weeks ago in Parashat V'etchanan also lo tasurim Minus And I feel like part of what Moshe is telling Am Yisrael before they go into Eretz Yisrael is that there are going to be a lot of messages they are very confusing. And every person lives in the culture they live in. And very often we don't even realize that our lens is the lens of our time. And going into Eretz Yisrael, Amisah is commanded to get rid of all the Avodah Zarah because they're coming from a world that's very much affected by idolatry. And going in to Eretz Yisrael, there's no chance that they're gonna be able to really embrace Judaism and embrace the Jewish way of life if there's so much out there that's really creating a situation that's so hard for them, that's gonna really limit their vision. And part of what Moshe says to Amisla going in is that you have to remember that even if sometimes you really think you know, you really think you see clearly, you have to remember that what you see is in your own eyes. I'm just going to give an example in this context that I think really connects to what we were talking about before with the Ir Miklat. So one of the very prominent topics that comes up in the modern world is the rights conversation. And Judaism talks about rights, but the more central focus of Judaism isn't rights, it's responsibilities. And just like with Irmi Miklat*, we talked about how a person is really responsible for their actions. This is a very, very prominent message in Judaism. And I think that often we get so caught up in the rights conversation that we forget about the responsibilities conversations.
0: You're making me think of two things. So going back to the Eichmann piece for a second, a lot of times the idea of objective truth would come up with, with the people that I would guide. And so I often think that in order to make a point, you have to go to an, an extreme or the most extreme example. So I would say, is Hitler evil? And the these were mostly college age students would come back and say, of course, Hitler's evil. And so I would say, okay, so if you can tell me that Hitler's evil, then objectivity must exist. And so then we would take the conversation from there. Today, more and more, when I ask that question, college age students have a really hard time saying that Hitler was objectively evil.
1: Really? That's so scary.
0: Yeah. I find it really scary, but I think that when we move into a world, like you're talking about the influences of the world, and we've moved into a place where this question of objectivity and subjectivity and right and left is so confused that I come back to this question. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke to Rebani Debbie Zimmerman on the podcast, and she had a really, we were defining words in Tanakh, and she had a really interesting definition for enoy as submission of will. So when we're supposed to afflict ourselves on Yom Kippur, it's really about submitting ourselves to the will of God. And I think that what we're talking about here is not necessarily the idea that Chazal are always correct because I think, and and you as, a, as somebody who's much more learned in halacha and the processes that I am can probably talk a little bit to this. There's a process for what happens when Chazal make a mistake. There's a process for what happens when Sanhedrin isn't correct. So I don't think there's an expectation that we see chazal as infallible. But I think that there is, we're talking here about submitting to the idea that there's an objective truth in the world. And that in that objective truth of God's system, we have to submit ourselves to a system that may be imperfect and maybe tell us that our right is our left and our left is our right. But we've bought into that system and we're going to continue to follow that system. And I think that's part of what this is saying is that even when something is incorrect, we need to hold fast to the system. And that can also be scary and dangerous. Yamino Smo and Yamino mean is not to say that Chazal are perfect and not to say that we think that that all of a sudden because somebody becomes part of Sanhedrin or part of the Misora, that they're infallible and godlike, but that we are submitting ourselves to an imperfect
1: system because this is the system God has given it. Imperfect system, I just feel like I'd like to tweak that and just say it's not a godly system, right? It's not a totally objective system. One of the things we have to understand is that there's the people in the system and there's the system. And I think it's very, very, very important. I don't feel like I said enough very, 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 very important to remember that no person is perfect, period. There is no perfect person. And that's how we're created. And also, Chazal, we're people. Now, the system is something different. And the system carries Torah Shebel And the strength of what the system carries is something much bigger than the sum of all the people in it. I feel like very often it's very challenging for us to approach ideas in Torah that don't, again, jive with the world we live in. And I taught high school a few years ago and a girl who I taught, she sat down with me and she said, I have to tell you that like, I don't get why we learn Tanakh because like, it's so lochi it's so not educational. So I said, what do you mean it's not educational? So she said, there are all these themes that are like totally against our whole education. Like, you know, Yaakov marries four wives and like, she gave me examples in the Torah that like are totally not educational. And I don't remember exactly what I said to her, but I want to tell you what I want to say to her. <laughs> and I feel like the question is, if I say, I know the truth and the Torah doesn't fit with my truth, or I want to say, the Torah is imit. it. Now, sometimes it feels very different than my outlook on the world, but do I want to say, oh, maybe I have to figure out how to, you know, to connect the two, or do I have this basic assumption? Again, do I assume that the Torah is true? Or do I assume that my view is true? And I find... Very often in conversations at home with my kids, we talk a lot about how are we citizens in the world first or are we first Jews? And I think this is a really big question. And I feel like as we become more and more exposed to media, so we sometimes feel so familiar with all these fictional characters or even non-fictional characters, and they're in my living room, they're in my hands, and it's very confusing. And I feel like part of what I want to take from this week's Parsha is is to say, I want Torah to be my basis of the way I look at reality. And all the other things, I'm sure there's a lot to learn from postmodernism. But the question is if postmodernism is my base and I add a little sprinkling of Torah, or if Torah is my base and I add some sprinkling of postmodernism. I think one of the the interesting pieces
0: of this week's parsha is the fact that at the very beginning we're appointing Shoftim and shotrim, right? We're appointing judges and officers to carry out The Torah. One of the things that the Parsha is setting up for us is that within this system, we have to create people that are going to tell us what to do and tell us that we're doing something wrong and tell us that this is right and this is left, even though I see that really differently. How do we, what kind of advice or what kind of messages is the Torah giving to these Shotrim, these? officers, to educators, to parents, to friends, in terms of how to give that message of some of the things that you're talking about that I think hit
1: really deeply in a way that people don't necessarily want to hear. Thank you. I, I want to mention one of my favorite mitzvot, which gets really bad PR. It's the mitzvah of tochicha. It's not actually mentioned in this week's parsha or in Dvarim at all. It's mentioned in parashat k'doshim, hochayach tochecha et amitecha, um, to rebuke your amit, your friend. And even though it's not mentioned in this week's parsha or in, in Sefer Dvarim, Sefer Dvarim really starts with the idea of tochecha. So the first speech, the first neum, the first address that Moshe gives Am Yisrael, we call neum ha where he reminds him of a lot of the things they did that were not so great. And it's interesting how the first Rashi, the first Rashi of every book, Rashi talks about Hashem loves us, Rashi talks about Hashem didn't want to embarrass us. And instead of giving us direct tochecha, he gives us a hint, a remez. And there's actually another Rashi that really talks about how we learn from Moshe how to give tochecha, how to rebuke properly. Now, I think that rebuke got a bad rap because our image of rebuke is somebody coming to somebody else and trying to force them to do something they're not interested in doing. And I think rebuke is sometimes something very, very different. I think also to remember the context, I think that one of the most common contexts for rebuke is dafka with people who were really in close contact in close encounters with, like, for example, like you said, parenting. So, Who's the person I rebuke more than anybody else? Obviously, my kids, right? So the word rebuke, I think, I feel like also is a little bit... It's a modern word. I'm not sure if it's a direct translation. But mochiach is to prove or to tell or to bring someone to realization that they're doing something wrong. And sometimes it's not something that they're necessarily against. I mean, with children, sometimes it is. But sometimes it's just teaching them something or giving them new information. But I just want to start with Rashi. So Rashi says like this. This is Rashi on... Perik Aleph Pasub Gimel, that's chapter one, verse three. And Rashi says that he quotes the Midrash and he says, Milamid, Shiloh Richan, Ela Samuhlamitah. So he says, Moshe rebukes Am Israel um, right before he dies. And then it said the Midrash says, Mimilamad, Rashi says based on the Midrash, Mimilamad, He learns from Yaakov. Shiloh Banav Elasamuhlamitah. So also Yaakov, before he dies, he comes and he tells his children. Many blessings, but also some unpleasant statements, which is also seen as rebuke. And then the Midrash says, So there are four reasons why it's best to rebuke people right before you die. So I'm not saying to only rebuke people right before you die, but I think we can learn some messages from what the Midrash says about this. So the first thing is, So it's important when you rebuke someone to say it once, and that's it. Not to say it again and again. And I feel like often we get caught in this trap. that, Like, when you say something, you expect the person to do it right away. And if he doesn't, you say it again. And the Midrash is telling us, you should say it and take a step away. Now, the other thing the Midrash says, Rashi actually doesn't bring all, the, all four reasons. But the next thing the Midrash says is, Veshelo ye ro'eu mitbayesh And again, I think this is the same idea, that when you want to make a statement, you want to say it and leave. Now, I don't think you want to say it and leave, like slam the door, but you want to give the person space. And when I first started teaching, I taught in elementary school and I had a teacher who was like my mentor and she would come into class and she would watch me teach. Um, And one of the things she said to me once is when you tell a kid to do something, you should tell him the thing and then walk away. Because if you're standing there, it's not going to be easy for them to accept your comment. But if you walk away, then then they can process and it become it can become their own. And I think this is a really important point with rebuke or with tochecha. And I think that it's interesting to think about what this means, about what our role is in tochecha. And on the one hand, I think what the statement is, is our role is to let the person internalize the truth that we're sharing with them, right? We don't want to force it on them. It's theirs, it's not ours. On the other hand, there's this idea of Kol Israel Aravim that I have a part in this, meaning, it, it, it affects me, too, even if it technically, technically doesn't affect me. The mitzvot that my fellow Jew does, I'm a part, we're a part of a whole. And I think rebuke kind of contains both the idea that that I have a responsibility for their actions, but that ultimately they're going to have to choose to act. And I feel like the basic rebuke situation is that, you know, that this other person just doesn't know and they'd be so, you know, happy to have this information. Now, I know there are many other rebuke situations that are not like that. But I think remembering that that's our starting point, that our starting point is that I have information this other person doesn't have, it's valuable information. And I just want to better their situation. I want to help. And I think coming from that place, it helps see rebuke in a different light. I also think it goes back to
0: uh, the conversation that Yosefa and I had at the very beginning of the Sefer Devarim, which is that Moshe Rabbeinu is trying to get everybody on the same page, right? It's been a generation. Most of the people that he's talking to, whether it be the people live that he's talking to or us in our generation, didn't experience Harsinai, didn't go through the desert. And so part of what Sefer Devarim does is it, it puts us all in that same space. And Moshe's intention is not, you're bad, you're bad, you're bad, but rather it's about making sure that we all have that same starting off point and that that love for us to put us in the same place before we enter Eretz Yisrael. And I think that going back to the original opening of our discussion, where you're talking about Irmik Klatt, and you're talking about the city of refuge and understanding that sometimes people make mistakes. Sometimes people aren't even making a mistake, they're doing something and it's, it's not their fault, but that ultimately, if we can remember that we all have different perspectives and we're all just trying to make our way through this sometimes very complicated thing called life. It can all do us in good stead in terms of the way that we relate to other people, but that ultimately we need to work together to remove things that'll be damaging to us. And that if we all come with that kind of positivity that you're talking about, I think that we can definitely not just make our communities a better place and our own relationships a better place, but we can, in a cliche way, make the world a better place. So I want to thank you so much. I want to wish you mazal tov again, and uh, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you so much, Rivy. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast@matan.org.il That's podcast@matan.org.il Thanks for listening, everyone.